here today, and I think the title of the talk, they asked me, I just gave it to them a couple of days ago, and the title of the talk is, is um, Good Friends and Suitable Conversation. And so in, in this tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, we refer to teachers as good friends. So we don't necessarily call them, like I know I study um, Tai Chi and we refer to our teacher as Sifu. In this tradition, you can call them teacher, but basically they're, they're seen as good friends. And that one of my roles, or my role of giving the talk tonight, is to talk about you know, good friends and also to talk about suitable conversation, but to actually embody that. So part of that is me actually being up here and talking about some of the aspects of the practice and maybe creating a vision of possibility for us in terms of how are we, are we going to live? How are we going to use these practices to be more present, to be more fully alive? And so I wrote myself some notes, and I, and I had to laugh at myself because I, I bring these notes, and then I never look at them because my process has been, and I was thinking about this, reflecting on it. I've been giving talks here, I don't know, since 90-something, almost, what, 20-something years and I can tell you, in the first, when I first started giving talks here, I used to get all nervous. I'd get here early, and then I'd always seem to run out of time because and I'd have so much to say. I'd, I'd write all the notes down, and then I realized after being around here for a few 24-7s, um, I don't really have to do that anymore. It, it's, it's become embodied in me, and if you really want to learn something, teach and write a book. It's a really good way to learn things. So uh, how many people are here for the first time? Just out of curiosity. Okay, and then we have a few. And actually, I want to shout out to some friends of mine, Kit and my, my nieces. My nieces, I have three nieces here. So it's nice having people in the family here. I've been, doing, been, I've been here 30 years, and it's only been a couple this year and maybe another year where I've had family members come in and check out what I'm doing. Because, it, you know, it's 30 years ago, I couldn't even mention the word spirituality. So things have really changed, and I feel like I've, I'm out of the closet after 30 years <laughs> of teaching this. And everywhere I go, I'm a celebrity now. And, and it's really interesting because I'm really the same dude. I mean, I actually lived in this, in this center for six years. And I've been practicing here for 30 years. And now I, I come and I can talk about it and say... Okay, this is my experience. This is really exciting that we're here. And what are we doing here? I mean, why, why do we come here? What is this practice all about? And so just to talk about that a little bit and not to get kind of bogged down on a lot of stuff, because what I'd like to do is talk a little bit, then have a Q&A. But I would prefer the Q&A be more Socratic style in, in the sense that we're asking questions and we're talking because the big part of this, having a good friend, is to really be able to talk about what's happening. Because the interesting thing about this practice, and the Buddha said this over and over, he teaches one thing, uh, suffering and the end of suffering. And so what we're really doing when we come together is we're ask, actually asking each other, how are we causing suffering for ourselves? On the one hand, and then on the other hand, we're saying, okay, given that we, we are causing it, how can we... 
uh, abandoning, abandon that way of being? How can we create a way of uh, using word, thought, and deed, and the fact that it causes more harmony and ease, no peace and ease, more joy? The opposite of how can we be more mindful rather than more mindless? How can we focus on one thing at a time? How can we just simplify our lives rather than being so complicated and having multiple devices, which I'm guilty of having. I got two cell phones, an iPad, a MacBook Pro, a MacBook Lite, a Mac, and that's just part of the stuff. There's more. There's, there's the printers that go with it, and then there's Facebook, there's Twitter, um, and on and on and on. And so that's the, the world we live in. I, I can tell you I've been working with student-athletes for uh, since 1998, and I remember the transition from uh, calling them or e emailing them. I used to go to this one university, Ohio University, and I used to go there five times a year, and that was the only place where I would email. An email would go out and tell all the student-athletes that I was coming to town, and I'd be in town for five days. And I realized quickly that if I called them... They didn't really answer. If I emailed them, they might get back to me. But if I text them, uh, I'd get an immediate response. I'm in class. I'll get you later. And that was one of my adaptations. That's what this practice is about. It's learning this practice, but then how do we make it real in our lives? And I had a colleague at Boston College, and he refused to text. And, you know, there's a part of me, because I'm... I'm still a wise guy. You know, part of me is like saying, well, how's that stuff working out for you? Because <laughs> I know it wasn't working because the student athletes are not going to respond to him if he just calls them because, you know, he's no different than me. But it's this inability for us, and this is the cause of suffering, inability to recognize that things are impermanent. Change is always happening. And because change happens and we act like it's not supposed to, we suffer. I don't know if you notice it, but, you know, we're born, we get old, we get sick, and we die. And if you look at folks and you reflect on your own experience, you will realize that we act like that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> but it happens. And so it's by embracing that that we're able to, to understand that we can be in the world, not of the world. We can relate to the world in a way where we can start to make sense of what's going on because what it comes down to, and I'll talk about it a little bit, um, in my book I talk about the five superpowers, it's really the, the spiritual powers, and in this practice, mindfulness is the heart of everything. Now, if you look out there on the internet, you go to Google, and you Google mindfulness, you'll have all sorts of hits. Mindfulness CBT, mindfulness this, mindfulness that. And you might even think that mindfulness is a cure-all. It is not. It's just one aspect of the practice. But people have different definitions of what mindfulness is. And all of those definitions, to some degree, have some validity. It's correct. But mindfulness is more than just mindfulness. It is, it is the heart of a, a teaching that has to do with this idea of, when I talk about the five spiritual powers, 
Mindfulness by itself is not enough. It has to be God, it has to be used to develop wisdom because one source of suffering is what? Ignorance. And so what's the antidote to ignorance? Wisdom, understanding. And so none other than uh, Albert Einstein said that the most important question we have to ask is whether the universe is friendly or unfriendly. Because if we see the universe as being unfriendly, then we will use all our resources to either block out, hide, destroy, ignore things that we feel are are threats. And if we don't think the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly, then it really doesn't matter what we do. But if, in fact, we believe that it's a friendly universe and that there's a lawfulness to it, that there's actually a way that the universe operates, and if we use our resources, which is what we're doing here, to align ourselves with divinity or align ourselves with the way things are, then there's, there's not only hope, there's, there's a way of having a joyful existence and so that we can actually give up survival because when you're seeing the universe as unfriendly, you're in survival mode. And what that means is if you want to get technical about the brain, that's the reptilian brain. came about about 400 million years ago, and it's, and it's the animal realm. And what does that brain do? Well, it fights or flees, it forages for food, for food, and it reproduces. That's all it does. And so if we're dealing with that brain, we're in trouble. Because we're in the fight or flight response, we're, we're in survival. And there was a gentle, there's a gentleman that wrote a book called Biology of Belief. And what he discovered in his cellular research is that a cell cannot be in survival mode and growth mode at the same time. So that, that applies to us. So if we're in survival, we can't be growing. We're just sustaining and white-knuckling it. And that we, we have other parts of the brain. We have a middle brain, a limbic system, what they call the emotional brain. And that a lot of times we can get emotionally hijacked from that. When we get angry or frustrated, you ever notice that, and I'll just say this, and this, this is not referring to my family members because... Uh, you know, I don't, we don't interact that much so that they would know my dark side. But, um, but what happens is the people that are closest to us, that's why they say familiarity breeds contempt. Closest to us, they can push buttons. And it's like you could be here practicing and be on retreat and be mellow and, and tranquil. Then you go home and all of a sudden so they say so they know how to push buttons. And it could be coworkers, it could be roommates. Or it could be the roommate we have in our head, the negative self-talk. It, it can, it, all of a sudden, it's like everything we knew about compassion, well, compassion what? Wisdom what? And we do the same reactivity, because this is what the reptilian brain does. There's no space between stimulus, something happens, and response. Now, in the Pavlovian experiment, uh, you might have heard of that uh, operational co- operant conditioning where he had this assistant that would feed the dogs and ring a bell. And, and what happened was all it would take is for the dog to see the assistant and he started salivating. We do the same thing because when we perceive things, we perceive things 
There's no space between stimulus and response. It's just reactivity. And a lot of these reactions are habitual, they're habit patterns, and most of all, they're convenient. And so what we try to do in this practice is by the practice of mindfulness being the heart of insight meditation and some of the other qualities that we'll talk about, like developing faith and trust, developing right effort, developing concentration or steadiness of mind, uh, developing uh, right effort, and obviously mindfulness, that we're able to create space between stimulus and response so that we can choose our response. So the whole practice, this whole idea of being mindful is that we can cultivate this is what I call the eye of the hurricane. So that's the metaphor. So there's all this turmoil going on, and right in the middle of it is this, this blue sky. This, in the eye of a hurricane, it's just peaceful, still, quiet, and, and that we have that. But what do we do? Because of our ignorance, we're hanging out in the turmoil, and we think that's who we are. And part of this practice is when we can start to create space between stimulus and response, we can be in this relaxed receptivity where we can observe things. We can allow things to speak for themselves so that we're not doing this thing that we normally do, which is we have a, a sense door or we get some data. And what happens is we get the data, and for a very short period of time, we're just seeing what's there. But immediately there's this influx of self-interest, it's an influx of associative thinking, like, oh, yeah, I remember the last time this happened, or abstract thinking, well, what does this mean for the future? And then uh, all of our other stuff that we project onto it. So we embellish the thing that we're observing, whether it's a sight, sound, or thought, in a way where the thing by itself, we're not listening to it at all. It's like you ever talk to somebody and they're already always listening, meaning that they don't hear a word you say, because they're relating to you as if you were still talking about the same conversation you had 10 years ago, or maybe yesterday. And so the idea is, but it takes a little, takes something to be vulnerable and sit there and say, okay, why don't I act like I don't know what's going to be said and then hear it and let it speak to me. Let it speak for itself in its own language. That's where the faith comes in. So when Einstein said it's a friendly universe, we have to have that ability to say, even though there's fear there, or even though I feel anxious or I feel um, frustrated, can I just allow the feeling to be there and still be still and just allow things to speak for themselves and not to react in my habitual way, but to create space so that I'm actually, I can choose. And that's what Viktor Frankl said, that between stimulus and response is where we choose and where we can transform. Does it make sense what I'm saying? And, well, that's an interpretation. That's an interpretation, as I said, simply because, well, that's, see, it's interesting, and, and let me speak, and then we'll, we'll talk more about it, but here's the thing. You've got to look at the mind that's asking these questions, because it's not a willingness to hear what I'm saying, see, and this is what I'm asking us to do, is hear what I'm saying without relating to what I'm saying, to what you already know, because that's what you're doing. And it's okay, because we all do it. But when you do that, you're not hearing what's here because there's too much clutter and noise. And the clutter and noise is what happened before versus what happened now. See, because 
Uh, I don't know about you, but it happens all the time. I, I use this, this internet service when I, when I do uh, profiles for my clients. And when I started working with BC Men's Soccer, I had like 28 guys and I had to get profiles done. And I went to the website and it was down. And the website was down for probably a month. And I'm thinking, okay, that website's not up anymore, right? Then I go out to San Francisco and I talk to my buddy whose website it is. And he said, oh, it's up and running. So I go online and sure enough, it's up and running. But I didn't have the courage or the wherewithal or the stick to to call him and say, you know, I did. Actually, I did text him and he got back to me. And that's how I knew. But I, I kept going to it and saying, oh, it must be down. Instead of saying, okay, that was yesterday. This is today. Everything, everything is changing. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Because, yeah, yes, because there's, there's something that you're trying to make sense out of something, and you're not hearing what's being said from a place of not knowing. And just being, be encouraged because everybody here has a different experience, and everybody can say, this is what happened when I did this. That's their experience. And that's based on things that are happening now are happening because the conditions are right for it to happen. There's all of these occurrences that have to happen for things to happen. So just think about people who are here. There's a lot of things that they had to sacrifice and the choices they had to make to be here, right? Because you're always choosing, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay home and watch TV? Or am I going to go to the movies? Am I going to do this? We're always making choices. And so what I'm suggesting here is that we start to look at our choices, but we have to look at the mind that is observing. Because if you have greed in the mind, it's a hindrance. It's not going to allow you to see what's there. And you're going to be relating or reacting from, with no space between stimulus and response. So you can actually just listen and hear the whole story before we have an opinion about it. And one of the things that this practice can do is with the mindfulness, and I'll talk about, I'll talk about mindfulness in a minute. With mindfulness and wisdom, we're able to, the analogy I like to use is like you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, right? And so you're trying to put pieces together and you, you're doing it, and then you get some of it filled in and then you notice, oh, you need a certain piece. Oh yeah, I remember that piece from before, then you go get it, and you keep putting it, and you, with time, you, you get a full picture of it, then you get some, some understanding. Then you start on the next jigsaw puzzle. That's what we're doing. We're, because mindfulness, or the mind isn't able to stay continuously engaged in what it's doing, so we have to stitch these little things together. That's one of the things that mindfulness does, and so we keep going at it. That's why it takes faith. And it takes this ability to trust and say, okay, I don't know how this is going to work out. And if I, based on what I see now, it ain't, I'm not feeling it. That's what we tend to do rather than saying, well, I don't know how this is going to work out, but let me create space and see what happens. And then when we do that, we realize, oh, we're seeing things differently. And it's not, we can't believe what we're seeing because we're not always seeing clearly. That's why another reason why it's good to have friends or have somebody that's with us so that they can tell us about our blind spots. Just like you're driving, there's a blind spot. You think you can see everything, you cannot. There's a blind spot. And the interesting thing is, that blind spot could be negative or positive. That's a good one. Because a lot of us have good qualities and we can't see it. But if we have friends 
And, and people would say, yeah, no, no, that's a good quality. And of course, if the mind says, I don't believe it, you won't believe it. But if you trust the person and you say, well, they don't lie and I trust them, then I'll say, okay, I don't know if it's true, but let me act like it's true and, and check it out. Because then you go in with glasses with, well, what is it? Rather than saying it's not going to work and you're going in, there's no way you're going to see what's there because you're relating to uh, your idea about what's happening rather than allowing what's happening to speak to you and to express itself. Does this make sense? And so this is what this practice is about. It's about creating that space. And as we get more clear, we're going to have more challenges because there's going to be some stuff where it's really challenging us. And what we might discover is, is because we're identified with the whirlwind instead of being identified with the space in between. That's why in the Bible it says, be still and know. A lot of other traditions say the same thing. This tradition says that. You know, if you're mindful and you watch things, from a place of non-reactivity, non-judgmentalness. You're not judging it, and there's no self-reference. Because as long as there's a self-reference, you're going to be worried about, yeah, but what if this happens? What if that happens? That's, what the, that's, what the, that's where that's coming from. It's fear. And there's, a, there's an acronym for fear, false evidence appearing real. Yeah, but what I, what, I hear what you're saying, but here's the thing. What I'm saying here is it's not what happens to you that's the problem because there's going to be times when we get uh, injustice done to us or we could be playing a basketball game and we get the wrong call or we could get, get accused of something we didn't do. That, we can't stop that from happening. But what we can control is our response to it. So the reaction to it is, is herky-jerky, knee-jerk, it's convenient, it's habitual. I'm saying we can choose to say, okay, um, my natural response would be to do it another way, but this is what I'm going to do. And I'll give you a good example of that. When the marathon bombing ha happened, anybody, usually when your bomb goes off, you're going to run away from that. There were a lot of people that were running to the explosion. What's up with that? Because they were moved by compassion. And the compassion overrode the fear. It overrode self-interest. And it happens. 9-11, it happened for a minute. Uh, Hurricane Katrina and other calamities, there's a natural movement of the heart to want to give. And even though you might not even like the person, there's this movement because you realize you go beyond the illusion of separateness. You start to realize we are all connected and we are all one. And when we have that experience, it's easy to love, it's easy to have compassion for somebody, even though they're being a pain in the neck. Well, you literally might have a pain in the neck. But if you see it as maybe it's my interpretation and maybe it's how I'm seeing it that's causing the pain because he's seeing the same thing and he don't have a pain. And you notice that about stress. Some things are stressful for some people and not for others. It's all an interpretation of what it means. And we're meaning-making machines. We take something, something happens. Like say, okay, so if somebody comes and slap, slaps me, right? Okay, I can say he slapped, you know, that person slapped me, and then I could have a whole story about it and react to it. Or I can just realize the only thing that happened is I got slapped. What do I do? So, so the thing is, I got slapped. 
That's, all, that's what happened. But I can interpret it as, like, say, if we're in the Zen tradition and you're sitting on the cushion and somebody comes and hits you with a stick, they're not hitting you to beat you up. They're hitting you to wake you up. So it's a different thing. So if somebody slapped me, you see the commercial, oh, thanks, I needed that. You know, it's the intention of the person that's slapping you and your relationship with them and also your interpretation of what it means to be slapped. So that is what we have to understand is something happens and then we interpret what it means. And that interpretation is based on our idea of what we think reality is. When in actuality, each time that happens, it's going to be different because we got to look at it as something new and fresh and really get clear about it, what, what it really means. And so it's like anything. So fire engine goes by while you're meditating. And you can sit there and say, okay, you know, it would be nice if that fire engine wasn't there. But the fact of the matter is that fire engine isn't bothering you. Fire engine is, is just a sound. But we make it into noise by interpretation of whether it should be there or not. And we could still have our peace in the midst because we can, have, just like the eye of the hurricane, there's all this turmoil, there's all this stuff going on. But as long as we stay in the center and don't identify with it, we can actually see what's going on and see how we can negotiate or regulate the situation. That makes sense. And so this is, this is what I'm suggesting is that, that we do this practice. Why? Because we want to understand how things work. And in this practice, as a good friend, I will offer these principles like mindfulness. And let me talk about mindfulness a little bit. Um, so mindfulness, there's a lot of definitions like, you know, mindfulness is paying attention in a particular way in the moment, non-judgmentally. And I like to add the, the adage, as if your life depended on it. Because it does, the quality of your life. Now, it's interesting because what does mindfulness look like? When we're being mindful, what are some of the qualities that can, we, can ensure us or have us know that, yeah, mindfulness is present? So one thing is this idea of not forgetting. Not forgetting what? Not forgetting the present moment. Not forgetting what we're doing. Because I don't know if you notice it, we'll be doing something and then something goes in and then we're, we're off doing something else. So the mind gets distracted internally or externally. And this is about having steadiness of mind so that we can stay on whatever we're looking at, whatever we're thinking about, whatever we're doing, we can stay on task. So we have to remind ourselves, oh, this is what I'm doing and I'm doing it now. The present moment is all that there is. That's the only time we can live. So there's steadiness of mind. Another way of saying concentration of poise. Then there's this idea of presence of mind. And here we talk about bare awareness. So when a sound happens, we talk about, okay, it's just a sound. It's not a fire engine. That we can create space between stimulus and response because once we call it a fire engine, there's all this associative thinking and all these stories about what that means that comes in and distorts everything. So we understand that if we can create a mirror mind, so that it just reflects what's in front of it. That's it. And then not only does it reflect, but we prevent ourselves from interrupting, interpreting, or doing anything, but being still and allowing it to speak to us. And, I, and I'll, I want to read something that, that speaks to that. This is guy, um, his name is Eugene Fink. He says, 
He's talking about wonder. What does this mean? It implies an approach that can shatter the taken for grantedness of everyday reality. Wonder is the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange and what is most familiar. It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us, a passive receptivity to let the things of the world present themselves in their own terms. And so that's a really good skill to develop so that we can just be able to let things speak to us. But like I said, it's a challenge because self-interest comes in. Associative thinking comes in. Abstract thinking, we project what we think it means because we're relating to what's happening based on what we already know. So there's a lot of clutter and noise. How can you see what's there? So if we can develop that mirror mind or presence of mind where we're just allowing things to reflect themselves without our self-interest, non-judgmentally. So we have steadiness of mind. We have this presence of mind. Then there's this idea of remembering what is skillful, what is unskillful. So in this practice, I can tell you if you have a mind with greed, it's going to be unskillful. If your attitude is a greedy attitude, you're going to be unskillful. If your attitude is a hateful attitude, it's going to be unskillful. I call it having on the hate glasses. <laughs> Everything you see, you're hating. You know, I don't like her. I don't like him. You know, what are you doing? I don't like that color, all that. And so we got to understand that those, what, that's what happens, the greed, the hatred. And if we like it and we're greedy, we're going to approach it. We're going to want more. We're going to move towards it. And if it's pleasant, if it, whatever happens, if it's a sound or anything we observe, is, if it's pleasant, we're going to move towards it. That's what the nervous system does. It's nothing personal. And if it's unpleasant, we're going to avoid it or avoidance. And if it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, we're going to space out unless we're being, have equanimity and we're not, we're not indifferent, we're interested, but we're not identified with it and we have that space between stimulus and response so we can let things speak to us without having, having an, an agenda. Does that make sense? And so then, so with steadiness of mind, mirror mind, and then this idea of, like I said, just, just allowing things to speak to us and understanding what is skillful, what's helpful, what's not helpful, because that's always a question. Okay, if I do this, is that helpful or is it not helpful? And we start to re reflect on that. And when you're an athlete and you're playing in competition, it's very obvious what's helpful and what's not. Because you, know, you either score or you don't score. Now, I'm going to ask you to exercise. Oh, it's okay, because I know it's a challenge for you. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You'll have time to ask questions later, but, but let me finish this, and then when we get into the questions, you can talk. So when you have the urge to speak, can you just say, okay, uh, either write it down or just say, okay, not now. Yes, but that's okay. But just work with me on this, okay? So here's, so here's the deal. So understanding what's skillful, what's not skillful, what's helpful, what's not helpful. And then the fourth thing is essentials or basics or what's, what's the principles involved. Because here's the interesting thing about principles, and this guy, uh, Stephen Covey, wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and he has these seven habits. And the thing about uh, principles is principle-centered. This is what we do here. We have the laws or, or the Dhamma. It, there's certain laws that we, we follow that, uh, that is aligned with how things are. So 
principles are timeless. And it's interesting, they never change. Gravity's gravity. I don't care if it's 2001 or, or 1875. Gravity is gravity. So they're, they don't change. Uh, they're timeless and they're self-evident if we're paying attention. And so, you know, and I know Kit can relate to this. I work with a lot of basketball teams, and if you play basketball, you play defense when the other team has a ball. And one of the principles in defense is you're supposed to, like, if I'm guarding this man, I'm supposed to see man and see where the ball is so I know what's going on. So I'm not an ostrich with my head stuck in the ground and hoping for the best. That's a principle. And obviously, there's another principle, and, I've, and this is the same in field hockey, lacrosse, soccer. You don't want them to penetrate, so you, you stop penetration. In other words, you stop them from going into an area where it's easy for them to score or that they disrupt the defense. And it's the same thing when you're in relationship with people. There's a principle. Think win-win. But the paradigm has to be abundance, because the problem is if we don't think there's enough there, if we're coming from survival, we see the one marshmallow, and that's the only thing that exists, and we ain't waiting for two. And it's only one, and you ain't getting it, dude. There's no way. That's mine. And that's, that's the energy. But they've done research on with kids years ago called the marshmallow test. They asked the kids when they're five, would you take one marshmallow now or would you wait and we'll give you two later? Well, when they followed them 15 years later, guess what? The ones who didn't have space between stimulus and response, the ones that weren't able to, to delay gratification and have some self-control, they had all kind of emotional and developmental issues. The other ones, they were doing well. Social intelligence and, you know, and, and all the other things that one needs to be in relationship, they had those qualities because they were willing to suspend um, uh, instant gratification or create space. Does it make sense? So I want to talk a lot more about it. So this mindfulness, it look like steadiness of mind, uh, presence of mind, mirror of mind, this idea of understanding and recognizing what helps and what doesn't help, and then the, the basics or the essentials. You've got to pay attention. So when you're mindful of something, it's not just being mindful of it. You've got to know got to have some wisdom of clearly knowing from a little bit to a lot what you're doing. Now, that's a novel idea. Wouldn't it be interesting if we, we know what we're doing and why we're doing something? And if we know what's the best way to do it? So you can think of wisdom of clearly knowing in three ways. One way is information, right? You need to know, okay, well, what time does that bus come? Or what time is the meeting? Or whatever. You need to know information. And then we got to use our rational thinking. I used to do this when I was learning Tai Chi and I was getting confused with how do I go from here to there? And then I realized, okay, it's, it's real simple, dude, your footwork. You know, you start with the feet, you control with the waist, and the hands follow. Those are the principles. And I remember those, then that's how I get back on track. So knowing what the essentials are. In this practice, the essentials are being here now. Being mindful, cultivating um, trust and wisdom, but the trust and wisdom has to be balanced by um, faith. 
So you got to trust. So, okay, so I'm committing to this process. And so I just pant, uh, planted some, some carrots. So when I put the seeds in the ground and I, and I put the fertilizer and, I, and it gets sunlight and it gets water, I can't three days from now dig it up to see how it's doing. I got to have trust that it's going to bloom. I don't know when, but I have to exercise some patience and just say, okay, let it, allow it. But I have to make sure I nurture it. Make sense? And so that's, that's where the challenge is because the stuff we're talking about, if you've been mindless for 30 years, you can't possibly expect to be mindful all the time in two weeks or one sitting. And I'm sure there's people out there teaching mindfulness. They did a little weekend workshop, and they think they know. But you don't know what you don't know. And I hate to tell us that I remember in the, eight, in the eighth grade, my friend said to me, do you know what you don't know? And I said, that's pretty cool. And on some level, yes, I do know that I don't know how to fly or stuff like that. But there's probably 99.9% of experience that I don't even know I don't know. And so if I understand that, then I can have some humility and say, you know, I really better get to learning about who I am and how do I access that, that masterpiece within. Because my, my philosophy is, just like Michelangelo, when they ask him how does he create these works of art out of these blocks of marble, and he said, all I do is chip away to get to the masterpiece that's already inside. What I'm suggesting is we already have divinity, whether we would call it Christ consciousness, Buddha nature, or the divine spark within, we have that. And these practices are, practices are about chipping away to allow it to express itself. So you might say that every one of us has our own masterpiece, and it's up to each one of us to take responsibility and go inside and allow ourselves to break out of that chrysalis or to chip away to let it express itself, and then can we become willing to share it with everybody else? Because, you know, this illusion of separateness is just that. So to the degree that I understand my suffering, I'm going to understand your suffering. So I'll have compassion out of my own. Like, okay, what does it feel like when you're frustrated and you're working hard and it ain't, help, and it ain't, and it ain't happening? Can we relate to that and say, yeah, wow. And then having a good friend and saying, well, okay, well, here's how I dealt with it. And you might try that because here's the challenge. Each person has to work it out for themselves because we're all different and we got to figure out what works for us. And so it's an inside job. And even though I know some things, I can't do it for you. You have to do it for yourself just like I can't, you can't do it for me. I have to do it for myself. So the best we can do is talk about it and share our experience, strength, and hope and continue to apply the principles and then come back to what we call the spirit of investigation to see if it's so. So everything I'm saying, it's nice to respect me and say, okay, yeah, maybe it's true. I'd be more interested in you checking it out and see if it's true in your own experience. So then it won't be faith, it'll be conviction. And what happens, this is the interesting thing with effort, is when we make the effort, and the effort I'm talking about is, is, is a continuous application of balanced, enthusiastic energy. And energy is not just physical, it's emotional and mental. And, and you'll notice that when you have a hindrance or when you have, uh, and you're in, a, in the survival mode, 
that you, you don't have access to a lot of energy. It's, it's hyper energy. It's high state of arousal, but it's not positive. But it takes to be in a high state of arousal to really do things and to get out of our comfort zone. But we have to have enough faith to know, okay, even though it's uncomfortable, I can get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so I won't talk a lot more, but I just wanted to just talk about how mindfulness, what it looks like, and the fact that it is not enough by itself. We have to develop wisdom, so we have to ask questions. What's my motivation? What's my purpose? What, why, why am I doing this? And then what's the best way to do it? And then can I develop a mindfulness practice, which isn't just sitting? That's really important, but can you have the mindset that says wherever you go, there you are, and what kind of attitude do I have? What's my body feel like? Is, is my energy high or low? Is it hyper or is it uh, kind of low-key? You know, is it kind of sluggish? And if it's sluggish, how do we invigorate ourselves? And if it's too hyper, how do we bring ourselves down? And so this idea of wisdom and faith balancing each other, this idea of effort, because it's interesting. It's not the tortoise, it's the hare. I mean, it's not the hare, it's the tortoise. And there's a song by Hokie Carmichael that says, slow motion gets you there quicker. That's what we have to think about. It's not going to be overnight. This is a marathon, folks. It's not a sprint. And even though I wrote a book called The Mindful Athlete, I hate to tell you, the game of life is running a marathon, and just like any other sport, you got to train for it. If you don't train for it, you'll start too fast and burn out, or you won't start... Fast enough, you won't finish. There has to be a way of how do we start at our own optimum pace and how do we move and develop more um, momentum as we move down the line? How do we get more confidence that what we're doing works? And when we know it works, then we're more motivated. And when we're more motivated, we're willing to push out of our comfort zones. And when we're willing to push out of our comfort zones, when we have that high positive energy, we get positive Results and because we have positive results, we get in a beneficial cycle, and that our, our energy becomes effortless at times, and it becomes inexhaustible because we're connecting to the power source. We're tapping into an energy that's here that we just have to tap into, and we know energy doesn't. It, it just changes. It doesn't go anywhere. So the same amount of energy that was at the beginning of the Big Bang, if you believe that, is here, and it's going to be here when we leave. And when we change into another energy and, and go somewhere else. But right now is where we are. And so can we really be here now? And so this idea of some of these teachings and then now we have suitable conversation and Q&A. And not only just talking, but you can read stuff, you can listen to stuff, you can watch stuff. But here's a, here's a time where you can ask the questions. And then we can have a discussion about how to do things. And that's a suitable conversation. Not, how, not why, but how. Because we can get stuck in the why. If you ask why questions, you'll have a good, pretty good analysis of what's wrong. But you won't be focusing on what's right. So when you ask the how questions, and we talk about how do we do this, how can we live more fully, how can we be more present for life, then that's the answers we're going to get. Because seeking ye shall find. Knocking it shall be open to you. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, and then we'll open up for questions.
Yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.